Welcome to the Sound Words Podcast. My name is Jesse Randolph. I'm the senior pastor of Indian Hills Community Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. Today, I'm on my own in our recording studio on a frigid day here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, To our California and West Coast and Southern listeners, I don't mean frigid like 59 degrees. I mean frigid like it's six degrees outside today and it's about to get colder. Uh, Anyway, you're not here to listen to me talk about the weather. No, on the Sound Words podcast, we cover a variety of biblical and theological topics in keeping with our goal to help Christians love and live out God's word. Well, today, I'm going to spend some time talking with you about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the LDS Church, which stands for Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. And my aim on today's podcast is to explain why, based on the teachings of the LDS Church and how their teachings measure up with Scripture, uh, this movement is not merely a false belief system, but is a cult. Now, the last time I recorded one of these solo podcast, I took some time to explain why the Roman Catholic Church is a false belief system. But you may remember that in that podcast, I referred to the Roman Catholic Church not as a cult, but rather as an apostate Christian group. And you heard me say just a few seconds ago that the Mormon Church is a cult. Uh, So what gives? What's the difference? Why is the Mormon Church a cult, but the Roman Catholic Church is an apostate Christian group? Well, let's go back to our basic definitions and distinctions that I laid out in our last podcast, or my last podcast, about Roman Catholicism. An apostate Christian group is a movement in which some truth once existed, but it's now been surpassed or eclipsed by various man-made traditions and philosophies. Uh, That describes the Roman Catholic Church very well. Uh, Early in its history, that church did have traces of Christian orthodoxy, But the truths it once held to have been washed away and eroded and superseded by various forms of man-made tradition. A cult group, by contrast, is a religious movement or system which contained no truth from the very beginning. Cult groups, by definition, have always been adrift from biblical Christianity. As we're about to see, that definition of a cult group fits the Mormon church to a T. The Mormon church is a cult. And it's a uniquely American cult, uh, born on American soil less than 200 years ago. Well, here's the format for this episode. We're going to explore the history, the development, and the core beliefs of the Mormon Church. Uh, We'll analyze where it stands with respect to salvation, Scripture, and the Savior, the categories we looked at last time as it related to the, the Roman Catholic Church. And then at the end, I'll give you some practical tips for any evangelistic opportunities you may have with those who are trapped in this cult. All right, with that, let's wind the clock back to right around the turn of the 19th century, meaning the early 1800s. America's a new republic, having recently been liberated from from British rule. Uh, These are the days, politically speaking, of Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton. And during this time, a a Protestant religious revival was sweeping the nation. And that period of revival is what's known as the Second Great Awakening. Now, the First Great Awakening happened in the 1730s and the 1740s with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield at the forefront. The Second Great Awakening came about 60 years later. And the Second Great Awakening, by the way, was by and large a good thing. It was this period during which America experienced a significant religious revival where you saw various 
mainline Protestant denominations like the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians growing substantially in their numbers. But at the same time, in some circles, the religious zeal of this Second Great Awakening was eclipsing sound doctrine. And what was happening was unsuspecting people during this time who had been stirred up emotionally by the religious fervor of the day were becoming easy targets for false teachers. And a number of distinctively American cult groups and other fringe movements arose during this period, this second great awakening, this period of religious zeal. And one of the claims that these cult groups had in common that that were birthed during this time was the claim that they were restoring the true church to its original purity, which is why a lot of these cult groups from this time frame were called restorationists. They claimed that they were attempting to move past the corrupt modern-day model of the church. Uh, But as we're going to see, all that they were really doing was restoring and recycling ancient heresies, uh, only now with a very distinctly American flair. Well, it's into that context, this restorationist context, that on September 22nd of 1823, a 17-year-old farm boy in upstate New York claimed that he'd been visited by an angel named Moroni. Uh, This boy had up to this point been affiliated with the Church of Christ, which was another distinctly American religious movement that had restorationist roots, Uh, a movement that taught and still teaches, the Church of Christ that is, that baptism is a condition of one's salvation. Well, according to this boy, Moroni had revealed to him the location of two golden tablets that had been buried and, and hidden on the side of a hill uh, there in upstate New York. Uh, the angel Moroni did not at this time uh, let this young man know or, or let this young man take these golden tablets, though. Uh, instead, this young man, Joseph Smith was his name, returned to this same site in upstate New York each and every year, sort of as a pilgrimage. Now, this area of upstate New York during this time, this Second Great Awakening time frame, was a hotbed of religious revivalism. Uh, it was known as the Burnt Over District because of all the, the religious fervor and fire that had spread through this area during the Second Great Awakening. And as the story goes, after, uh, after making uh, several of these pilgrimages to upstate New York, in 1827, Joseph Smith was finally given these elusive golden tablets by Moroni. And Joseph Smith claimed that using a pair of seer stones, he was able to read what he described as ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs on these golden tablets. Uh, He began, he said, translating these tablets. I'll have more on that later. And according to Smith, these Egyptian hieroglyphic uh, tablets told this epic tale of a group of Hebrews who, just before the Babylonian captivity, so this would be pre-586 B.C., left Jerusalem and traveled to the Americas, what we know as the Americas today. And this, uh, this group apparently landed on what we now call American soil sometime around 589 BC. And these people apparently became the ethnic forerunners to Native Americans. So these nomadic Hebrews, who were known as Nephites, they established this thriving civilization in the Americas. This is all according to Joseph Smith. They followed the law of God, and they anxiously awaited the arrival of the Messiah. Apparently, according to this teaching, Jesus Christ himself even came to visit this ancient civilization here on American soil after he died and rose from the grave. 
Uh, and as a result, many of the Nephites believed in him, in Christ, as their Messiah. Well, later, in the 4th century AD, a prophet named Mormon uh, recorded the history of, the, of his people on some golden tablets. Again, this is all according to the narrative of Joseph Smith. This is not Jesse Randolph speaking, this is Joseph Smith speaking. Uh, so he says that this prophet Mormon uh, recorded the history of his people on some golden tablets. And then Mormon's son, Moroni, hid the golden tablets on the side of this hill in modern-day New York. And then in 1823, Moroni returned, this time as an angel, to tell Joseph Smith where he could find those golden tablets, which takes us all the way back to where we started. So, after Joseph Smith's so-called translation of these golden tablets, which became, by the way, what we know now as the Book of Mormon, he returned those tablets to the angel Moroni. Now, conveniently, and I say that intentionally, after Smith translated these golden tablets, the tablets were magically lifted up to heaven so that we no longer have them and we can't see them and we can't use them and we can't appeal to them to either verify or refute Joseph Smith's entire account. So Joseph Smith claims that it was around this time uh, that these tablets were translated up to heaven that he was appointed by God as God's prophet. And with this self-appointed designation and what was already this seedbed in upstate New York of religious excitement, Joseph Smith started to gain a following. Well, he did start to gain a following, but the reality is Joseph Smith was not loved or even liked by everyone. See, because his teachings were so unorthodox and so outside the mainstream, Joseph Smith not only started to build a following, he also started to begin, uh, started to experience resistance and even some persecution. He and his followers were chased out of New York and then out of Ohio and then out of Missouri and then out of Illinois. Uh, throughout his life, Smith encountered regular legal trouble. He had regular uh, run-ins with the law. Uh, in New York, he was sued for being an opportunistic treasure hunter. People uh, sent him substantial sums of money for his agreement to reveal to them the, the location of supposed lost treasure. And he claimed to have this ability to use his seer stones and divination skills to discover lost treasure, uh, like he was a, you know, an ancient Indiana Jones or something like that. But alas, when no treasure was found, Joseph Smith found himself getting sued. So that was New York. Uh, then in Ohio, Joseph Smith was arrested for bank fraud. Uh, he not only started a church there, but he started a church-run bank, which somehow lost all of the money of its congregants, leading to him being prosecuted for bank fraud. Uh, that led him to move down to Missouri. And there, Joseph Smith got in trouble when a group of his followers uh, attacked some Missouri state troopers. Uh, he was arrested on, on the charge of treason in connection with that whole ordeal, and he was nearly put to death. Uh, finally, he made it back to Illinois, uh, his fourth state, and there he got into a run-in with the locals uh, after he proposed marriage to other people's wives in keeping with his views on polygamy. Uh, it was also in this state of Illinois that he was arrested on charges of inciting a riot and treason. Well, it was in Illinois in 1844 that Joseph Smith died. Uh, he was in a jail cell when an angry mob attacked him. And he was shot multiple times while attempting to crawl out of a jail window, and he fell to his death at the young age of just 38. Well, after Smith died, 
the Mormon movement was fragmented. Uh, the largest group of his followers went with a man named Brigham Young. And it was Brigham Young who led this movement further west to Salt Lake City in what is now Utah. Um, there in Utah, the movement became what is now known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church. Now, because so much of what L- the LDS Church holds and believes, because it rests so heavily on his life and his experiences and his theology, we should spend a little bit more time evaluating the life and the ministry and theology of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, to really evaluate its claims. First of all, let's take a look at some of his prophecies. You know, the Bible teaches in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 and 21 and 22, as well as in Ezekiel 13, uh, verses 3 through 9, that true prophets of God, if, if one holds themselves out to be a prophet of God, they will declare divine revelation with 100% accuracy. Their prophecies will always be fulfilled. So we have to ask, how did Joseph Smith fare in that category of, of prophecy, foretelling future events? Well, let's run through some of them. Uh, in 1831, he predicted that Jesus Christ was going to return in 1891. That didn't happen. Uh, in 1832, he claimed that he, Joseph Smith, would, would build a temple in Missouri. That didn't happen. In 1836, Smith claimed that he was going to find treasure in the city of Salem, Massachusetts. That didn't happen. Uh, in 1843, he predicted that the U.S. government was soon going to be overthrown. Well, that didn't happen. None of these prophecies came true, meaning using a biblical framework Joseph Smith was clearly a false prophet, but there's more. Let's take a look next at some of his historical and linguistic work. You know, his, his stories about these ancient Hebrews making their ways to the Americas. How do we uh, square that up with scripture, square that up with history? Well, the reality is his stories about these ancient Hebrews making their way to the Americas way back when are entirely devoid of any sort of historical or archaeological support. Um, all non-Mormon historians and even certain Mormon historians reject Joseph Smith's historical accounts. Further, modern DNA evidence absolutely refutes the notion that Native Americans are somehow descendants of the ancient Hebrews. Also, remember that Joseph Smith's claim is that what became the Book of Mormon was translated from these gold plates that contained Egyptian hieroglyphs. And First and foremost, while no evidence exists of those plates having ever existed, because they allegedly were somehow skylifted to heaven at some point, there is evidence that does exist of Smith's translation of other Egyptian documents. And here's the thing. Trained Egyptologists, experts in their field, have shown that Joseph Smith had absolutely no idea what he was referring to as it related to translating Egyptian hier hieroglyphic documents. Uh, in terms of his work in that field of history and his work in the field of linguistics, Joseph Smith was a total fraud. Let's look next at his moral integrity. Uh, you know, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 lay out clearly the standards of how a faithful spokesman for God ought to live. And if those chapters of scripture could be summarized in two words, it would be that person live in an above reproach lifestyle. Well, to any unbiased observer, Joseph Smith fell far short 
of the above reproach standard of the pastoral epistles. Not only did he have repeated run-ins with the law, uh, he also decidedly was not a one-woman man. Instead, he, he championed the idea of plural marriage. He was married to somewhere around 40 women, many of whom were already married to other men. Joseph Smith was an adulterer. You know, his life is reminiscent of the false teachers described by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2, verses 12 through 14, where he says, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, using abusive speech where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Joseph Smith was an immoral con artist, and his greatest con was creating the false religion of Mormonism. Now, those are admittedly strong words. How do I justify using them? And how can I say that Mormonism is a false religion? Well, I can do so by applying the biblical grid that we used last time when we looked at the Roman Catholic Church, looking at the scriptures, the Savior, and salvation, and this church's view of all three of those categories. First of all, Mormonism has a wrong view of the scriptures. Uh, The Mormon church's wrong view of scripture comes from the fact that they elevate three of their uniquely Mormon books to a level of equal and, in reality, greater authority than the Bible. Those three books are the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. They have three books of Scripture, their own Scripture, that they they claim are equal to, but in reality supersede Scripture. Here's some of their own documents and words. I'm quoting here from LDSOR.org and other places. This is the, the, the Mormon Church itself. They say, The Book of Mormon is the Word of God, like the Bible. It is Holy Scripture with form and content similar to that of the Bible. Here's another quote from from the LDS Church. It it says, To establish doctrine and to understand the biblical text, Latter-day Saints turn to living prophets and to additional books of Scripture, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. So, according to their own writings, these books, these other three books, are considered to be authoritative and inspired scriptures, a a revelation from God. Well, each of those books contains the teachings of Joseph Smith, and as we've already established, he was a false prophet. So, Mormonism is guilty of adding the teachings of a false prophet to the actually authoritative revelation of God contained in the Bible. The Mormon church also claims to have 12 living apostles who receive new revelation from God whenever it's needed. Uh, They call themselves the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. This is the Mormon Church's version of the Twelve. So, all of this, the additional books, these so-called living apostles, what they do is they detract from the all-sufficient Word of God contained in the 66 books of the Bible. The Mormon Church, point being, has a wrong view of Scripture. What about salvation? We know, we've just seen that the Mormon church has a wrong view of scripture. What about salvation? As we saw last time, a true church rests solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is, after all, as Ephesians 2.20 says, the cornerstone of the church. Well, in regards to its 
doctrine of soteriology, which is just a fancy way of saying the doctrine of salvation, the LDS movement again shows itself to be a false church. First of all, the, uh, the Mormon church, Mormon theology teaches a, a general salvation in which almost everyone, including non-Mormons, will experience salvation. But they say that the highest form of heaven, what they call the celestial kingdom, is reserved for those who believe Mormon doctrine and whose belief in Mormon doctrine is undergirded by good works. That's, that's key to understanding Mormon faith and Mormon practice, that idea of good works being uh, attached to salvation. Here, here's uh, Robert Bowman in a book called What Mormons Believe. He, he lays out the fundamental requirements of salvation according to Mormon doctrine, and, and, and there are four of them. One, belief in Christ. That's where we would say, amen. But look at two, three, and four. Two, baptism into the LDS church. Three, keeping all the commandments, which would include rules given by the LDS church. And then four would be receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which happens when another Mormon lays hands on you. So one, very good, belief in Christ, salvation. That sounds very much like uh, Ephesians 2 type language. But then they add these other three and they're completely outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And the Book of Mormon, by the way, itself confirms that LDS theology adds works to faith as an element of salvation. According to Moroni 10, verse 32, it says this, Yea, come unto Christ, and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then... Is his grace sufficient for you? Did you see how the cart came before the horse there? It's telling you to do things, deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might and strength. And then will his grace be sufficient for you? It's not uh, faith producing works. It's works producing faith in a real sense. So anyway, the, the, the LDS church clearly teaches a works-based salvation. They are trusting in their moral goodness for eternal life, which is really why just about every Mormon you'll ever meet is going to be one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Uh, Mormons, though, they'll, they'll often talk about grace, but that grace, as we see from their documents here, uh, is really predicated on good works. Well, the Mormon church not only has a, a wrong view of scripture and a wrong view of salvation, uh, the LDS church also has a wrong view of the Savior. Uh, first, in addition to them saying that God is our heavenly father, Mormon doctrine teaches quite plainly that there is also something called a heavenly mother. And they believe that all people are the spirit children of these, of these two heavenly parents. And that's what the LDS church's own documents say. They say, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this is LDS doctrine, teaches that all human beings, male and female, are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. And then it says, the doctrine of a heavenly mother is a cherished and distinctive belief among Latter-day Saints. So according to official Mormon doctrine, we are all the product somehow of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. But not only that, they say that Jesus Christ was the first child born to this heavenly father and heavenly mother. 
In fact, Brigham Young, uh, Joseph Smith's successor in his work, Gospel Principles, he once said this. He said, the first spirit born to our heavenly parents was Jesus Christ. So he is literally our older brother. In other words, according to that teaching, Jesus Christ is not co-eternal with God the Father, as the Bible would teach. Uh, The LDS movement is denying that Jesus is God. Uh, They claim that he is a created being, and in doing so, they deny the Trinity. Friends, that is rank heresy. So on all three fronts, Scripture, salvation, and their view on the Savior, the Mormon Church clearly, through their own documentation, is a false church. Well, there we have it. Uh, A very quick jaunt through some of the key ways that the Mormon church gets it wrong on these topics of salvation and scripture and the Savior. Uh, These are some of the key teachings that you must be aware of to, to fully understand the seriousness of the errors of the false teaching of this uniquely American cult group. Uh, and these are the key teachings you're going to have to have in mind as you're encountering people from uh, that are trapped in this cult group. So how do we go about doing that? How do we go about conversing with and, and sharing with and, and loving people that are trapped in the Mormon church? How do we approach friends and, and neighbors and others who might be associated with the Mormon church? I'm going to suggest just a few ways to, to do so. These are similar to what I said on the podcast about Roman Catholicism. Number one, approach them earnestly. As is true of any person you're seeking to share Christ with, see them not as arguments to win, but rather as souls who need to be saved. Approach them with a burden and a heartache because you care for their souls. You're not trying to show yourself to be the smartest person in the room, the most gifted person in the room, uh, the most intelligent person in the room, but rather because you have a burden for where they will spend eternity if they don't come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. So approach them earnestly. And in a related vein, approach them humbly, um, not, not contentiously, not combatively. Uh, keep in mind the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, where he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, uh, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And then third and last, approach them prayerfully. Uh, When you say you're going to pray for them, pray for them. Commit to doing so and do so. And then pray for their church. Pray for the Mormon church. Pray for their leaders. Pray for all the people who are trapped in this false system. And it is a system that is not only false, but continues to spread, not just in Utah, but all over the world. And praying in that way, is going to, it's going to soften your heart toward those who have been ensnared in the lies of this cult group. Well, I hope you found today's episode helpful and that you're receiving it for what it is. Just uh, this guy's, my <laughs> attempt to speak the truth and love uh, about a, a group that has hurt so many and ultimately is sending many people to hell. I'd encourage you to share the episode far and wide. And as you do so, again, pray. Pray that God would graciously snatch many people who are deceived by Mormon teaching from the fire. In the meantime, the last word for today, as always, will come from God's word, and specifically 2 Timothy 1.13, 
which says, Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Sound Words Podcast.